Scientist the Human Podcast, commencing. Welcome to Scientist the Human Podcast. I'm your host, Sermanjeet Singh, and I'm excited to present the graduate student experience episode where we will chat with several graduate students, master's degree students, and PhD students in a couple of different fields about their experiences in scientific research. So the first person we have here today is Liza Miller, who is a research assistant at the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York City, and she is also a master's degree student at Hunter College. So without further ado, let's start with the first segment. Enjoy. I'm here with Liza Miller, who is a research assistant at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, and she's also a master's degree student at Hunter College. Yes, Liza, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. So let's just jump right into the research that you do here. What do you do? So the research I do at Memorial Sloan Kettering um, is mostly poop-based, <laughs> um, is the short answer. Um, but the longer answer is that I work at the Castori Center, which is the Molecular Microbiology Core Facility. Um, and what that means is that we process mostly poop samples from an immunology lab that's doing research on how the immune system interacts with the intestinal microbiota in the context of various pathogens. And we also process samples from clinical trials, um, which is mostly focusing on the specific pathogen Clostridium difficile, aka C. diff for short. Mm-hmm. Um, and that uh, arm of the research is also looking specifically at fecal microbiota transplants. Okay. So fecal transplant, that's super interesting. We'll get into that in a second. But first, I guess, on a day-to-day basis, let's say a new stool sample, or as you call it, poop sample, right. uh, gets you know <laughs> arrives to you onto your bench, and you have to isolate DNA from it. So can you take a step-by-step about how you do that? Yes. So what that looks like is we get the raw stool, if it's from a human patient, or pellet, if it's from a mouse. Um, And we first extract the DNA, which is a series of chemical separations and also mechanical lysing of the fecal matter. Um, And what that does is you're separating out anything that you don't want, a.k.a. the proteins or the RNA or the fiber. All of that stuff gets separated out until you're left with just pure DNA. Um, And then we purify that and we PCR it. And PCR stands for polymerase chain reaction. It's a chemical reaction where you're basically just making copies of a short little bit of your DNA. Um, And the short little bit that we are amplifying or making a bunch of copies of is called the 16S region which is highly conserved in bacteria, and that means that all bacteria have it because it encodes an important part of their ribosomes. Um, But it's also highly variable, which means you can use it to identify a given bacterial species. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I just wanted to interject and say that ribosomes are organelles or parts of the cell, uh, whether it's a bacterial cell or a human cell. Uh, Ribosomes are the part of the cell that translate DNA. Yes, they, they use the DNA code to make proteins. Exactly. So all bacteria have to have ribosomes, and they all have this gene region that encodes for that. Um, So after we have all those copies of the 16S region, we then purify it again, uh, quantify it, and then we send it to the genomics core facility, which has a MySeq Illumina sequencer, which is... Next gen. Next gen, yeah. (laughs) This is cutting-edge, high-throughput sequencing Mm. technology. Um, So they're going to sequence all of of that DNA, and from there we get a snapshot of what's in the intestinal microbiota. Got it. So the goal here is to, uh, to use the word you just used, get a snapshot of what's in the, of the, the microbes that are in, the intestines, and among those are is C. diff. Right. right. So, yeah. So, in a 
healthy microbiota, you have a pretty diverse mix of bacteria. In a, an infected microbiota, like if it's infected with C. diff, then your good bacteria kind of die off and C. diff can take over or dominate. And that mm-hmm. usually happens in a context where a person is given a lot of different antibiotics or given antibiotics over a long period of time, which is the case for a lot of the patients in our hospital who are at risk for C. diff infections. So a lot of patients that have these C. diff infections, if they're unable to treat them successfully with antibiotics or other means, they will do something called a fecal transplant, which is something you mentioned earlier. So can you talk about what that is? Definitely. So that's super exciting, and we just started our first clinical trial with fecal transplants, um, but it's being practiced, and um, it's, it's sort of a new new technology, if you can call it a technology, <laughs> yeah. um, that's slowly being implemented into the treatment of C. diff. Um, But it's exactly what it sounds like. It's a fecal microbiota transplant. So you're taking the fecal microbiota of one person and putting it into the intestine of another person. Use via which route? Via, it's basically like an enema. So at least the way we do it. Okay. so, and what that does is it rebalances that microbial ecosystem and prevents or displaces the pathogenic bacterial bloom, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so, in our case, we're actually doing um, an autologous fecal transplant, which means that the fecal microbiota um, is taken from a person before they undergo any antibiotic treatment, and then if they need it, they get it their own microbiota back. But that's not always possible in every case. But is that even always a good thing? Because what if their own fecal matter has C. diff or other... Right, so we have to test for that. And so that that model works in our context because we know, hopefully they have a healthy microbiota, healthy, diverse microbiota going in, Mm -hmm. and then we know that we're going to disrupt it a whole lot Um, but hopefully we can use that original microbiota. But in the case of something like somebody already has recurrent C. diff infections, of course you couldn't use their own microbiota to treat them. Mm -hmm. Um, So you'd have to use a donor, which is sort of the standard way that people are doing fecal transplants right now. Okay. That is super interesting. (laughs) Who who is your PI, your principal investigator? Uh, His name is Dr. Eric Pamer. Dr. Eric Pamer. And so he oversees... This entire, because you mentioned a lot, you said there, there's the immunology mm-hmm. wing, and then there's what else, like the, the sequencing that you do? Or is that kind of part of the same? Because you differentiated it. Right, so the, the samples come from two different arms. Okay. So there's the clinical research arm, so that's like the patient samples. Okay. And then there are um, graduate students and postdocs who are doing uh, research in mice. <laughs> I, I thought you were gonna you were gonna say that the the poop is coming from the graduate students first. Well, second. maybe we don't know. Well, you don't know, right? Weird things happen. Right, weird things do happen. <laughs> See, so you just get the the stool sample. You don't you don't know where it comes from. Just... I mean, we hope we know where it comes from, but we don't discriminate. You okay, know, we take yeah. all kinds of poop. All right, great, fantastic. So, yeah. Okay. <laughs> and so, how did you get into the poop business? So. I didn't, oh, I wasn't always so enthusiastic about poop. Mm-hmm. I didn't have a chance to be as enthusiastic okay. about poop as I am now. Right. Um, but I learned how to do all of the molecular biology techniques that I do now uh, during my undergraduate research experience where I had to write a senior thesis. Mm-hmm. Um, and the project that I was doing there had to do with, rather than a human intestinal pathogen, a... Uh, pathogen of amphibians, which actually infects their skin. Okay. Um, and I was looking at um, the, <laughs> the bacteria in vernal pools, which might protect amphibians from that chytrid fungus. So I was doing... What are vernal pools? Vernal pools are transient pools of water that form in the spring from melting snow mm-hmm. and rain. Oh, okay. Um, so you might see them if you're driving on a highway, especially right. in the northeast, mm-hmm. just little pools of water. And those are important habitats for some amphibians because they lay their eggs there. Are we talking puddles or just bigger? They're like really big puddles in the woods. Oh, okay, really, okay. Yeah. 
So not lakes, but also not a tiny puddle. Not a tiny puddle. Okay, got it. A, a good sized puddle. Okay. Like you could go up to your knees, maybe. Oh, okay, that's a pretty good puddle. Yeah. All right. Um, so, the the fungus or the chytrid is an invasive pathogen that disrupts the electrolyte balance of the amphibian skin. Um, but the good thing is that certain amphibians have a microbiota on their skin that protects them from it. It produces so, uh, one in particular, the one that I was interested in, is a pigment, a purple pigment called volicin, that kills the chytrid. Um, so I was looking for bacterial isolates that I found in my vernal pools that would also inhibit the chytrid in vitro. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I used to do that were the same exact techniques that I just outlined before. So extracting the DNA, well, culturing the bacteria, extracting the DNA from it, and then amplifying the 16S region and identifying it just the same way I do now. Right. But with many more samples. Okay. So you do this with amphibians. Mm-hmm. And now you do poop. Exactly. So it's not as big a stretch as it sounds because mm. the molecular biology is exactly the same. Okay. Right. And so your undergraduate education, you completed it where? Bard College. And Bard College is where? Bard College is in the Hudson Valley. In the Hudson Valley. In the middle right. of the woods. In the middle of the woods. Yeah, so you, you mentioned this before, uh, to me at least, that you really enjoy the outdoors part of the, your research that you got to do at Bard. So could you talk a little bit about that? That's true. So the great part of doing biology at Bard is that your classes consist of a lot of mucking around in the woods and looking at birds Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. And I really liked the mucking around part and catching frogs and waders and things like that. (laughs) Um, So I loved that I got to do some of that plus lab work in my senior thesis. Um, And I'm not doing that now. Maybe I'd like to do that again at some point if I can marry the two. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was a really fun experience. Right. Okay. And I wanted to ask you, um, or I wanted to mention that one of the reasons that I wanted to have you on the podcast and we spoke about this is because you kind of represent the in-between a little bit because we have uh, undergraduate students and then we have uh, professors or postdocs or graduate students that are in PhD programs. And you, although you are a graduate student, you're in a master's program. You're only a couple years removed from your undergrad and you're working as a research assistant at uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering. And so it's just a different point of view, a different perspective. So what piece of advice might you offer to a young student, undergraduate student? Not that we're old. but no, uh, not really. <laughs> yeah, not at all. But <laughs> Although we are wise. Yeah, we are wise. We're, yeah. But So what piece of advice might you offer to somebody younger than yourself who is interested in getting into science research and is not sure whether or not Uh, he or she wants to commit to a graduate program right away? Uh, So for me, I wasn't sure after my undergrad whether I wanted to just jump into a PhD program. I kind of wanted to get some more experience, get my feet wet outside of vernal pools, like (laughs) literally getting my feet wet in vernal pools, Uh (laughs) um, and get more experience in a lab and see if I really wanted to do research for the rest of my life. So that's why I decided to work as a research assistant or lab tech. Um, And that's been awesome for me. I have a really fun lab, and I've learned a lot. And the great thing about a lot of research institutions, including Sloan Kettering, is that they have awesome opportunities for tuition reimbursement. So that means that I can work full-time at MSK, but I'm also able to do this master's part-time at Hunter, which is just a few blocks away for people who aren't in New York City, Mm. (laughs) Um, and my lab or MSK will pay for it, which, you know, I had to take advantage of such a great opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. And is there anything unexpected, something that you didn't realize would be the case uh, about working as a research assistant? Um, I think I wasn't expecting... It's a lot of fun, mm-hmm. like the environment, even though we're very I'm, serious about it. I mean, you're work. playing with poop all day. We're playing so, with yeah. poop. You yeah, know, you yeah. have to have a bad sense of smell and a good sense of humor. <laughs> so we make a lot of jokes. Yeah. Um, but we do, we we work really hard, but we also, mm-hmm. it's also a very, like, relaxed environment. And we, you know, we chat and listen to disco music and listen to podcasts. And mm-hmm. 
So podcasts. <laughs> podcasts, including one of my favorite podcasts, Scientist the Human, oh, hosted okay. by well, Sim Sing. Thank you very much. I, I really appreciate the plug on my own podcast. <laughs> I figured. I, yeah, that, that's fantastic. But Liza, thank you so much for chatting with me. I really appreciate this. Thanks for having me. Up next is Stefan Evans, who is in the first year of his PhD program in physics at the University of Arizona. So here we go, our conversation with Stefan. I'm now here with Stefan Evans, who's a friend of mine from high school, and he is a graduate student, a PhD student at University of Arizona. Yes? Thanks for joining me. Right. Thanks for having me, Stan. All right. So you're in Arizona right now. Yep, it's sure as I sure am. <laughs> so this is another Skype chat that we're having, and uh, I'm very happy Stefan decided to join me, and we're going to talk a little bit about uh, what research he's interested in, about his program, and what he's doing out there. Stefan, what field is your research in? What field is your degree in? So, I'm a physics student, and currently I'm interested in high-energy physics. that several different branches of particle physics, whether you want to look on a small scale or look at cosmology. So, yeah, that's, that's the direction I'm, I'm hoping for right now. Alright, and uh, what... Is, is that the direction? That's not the direction you've always had, right? You've had some, some couple of different interests within physics? Yeah, so I was actually, I was actually in optics for about five years, um, mostly studying the way light can have angular momentum, and not just spin if you want to talk about polarization, but also it's called orbital angular momentum. Basically, you can see light that acts like a whirlpool, and this had many applications, and transmission of information and astronomy but it kind of felt like it was time for a change and mm. the theoretical part of particle physics looked really interesting and that would be the and that's the next step that you're you're that's the next direction you're headed towards right yeah so, so can we talk a little bit about just the level of preparation that somebody needs to, I guess, just be able to comprehend something as complicated as theoretical physics? Well, there are a few math courses, but um, I would say the main part are physics courses. Now, um, it depends what kind of theory you would like to go into. A big part of it would be really field theory, and that, that doesn't just necessarily apply to particle physics. Basically, what you would start with is your... After going through undergraduate, it would it'd be nice to go through graduate quantum mechanics. And then afterwards, you would apply this to, to fields through quantum field theory. And, and from there, you, you can get more specialized. And that, that's not restricted really to particle physics. Really, oh, It's a lot of the math that can be used in many different topics, like biophysics or condensed matter physics, really continuous media. It's a, has a broad range, and then you can mm -hmm. step further with. Can we talk a little bit about what quantum field theory is? I guess so. For for the level that you're at, what what is your understanding of what quantum field is? So the first part really is classical field theory. So if you when you take an undergraduate classical mechanics class, you will you will look through several ways of talking about how how objects will move, behave. Um, the first, of course, is Newtonian mechanics. But then you're going to move on to different formalisms, like Lagrange formalism, and just ways of using, finding, describing energies and really using those to derive how things behave. But in a sense, you know, you're not really going to start with just one particle at a time or one object, but eventually you need to look through some media of many. And that's when it becomes classical field theory. But then, that, then after that, you need to really, after you can do quantum physics on the side, and then it's nice to combine the two. So it can apply to even atomic physics, how um, you'd like to quantize the light field, and really, let's see, I'm going to get lost in this. <laughs> But that's that's the essence of physics, right? That's the essence of theoretical physics. It is so complicated. It's easy to get lost, right? Even even for our graduate students, to yourself. Uh, I'm still at the beginning, so mm -hmm. 
all, all these definitions I'm telling you are still quite new to me. I'm, I'm still freshly cut from undergraduate and mm -hmm. some of the things still look intimidating, but it's, it's definitely been interesting. Yeah. So, um, in terms of your your new interest, you said so you started off doing some research in optics, and now your recent interest has been more on the theoretical side, uh, more of particle physics. So, what is it about theoretical physics that 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 drew you, that interested you? Well, starting off with um, optics, I was I really liked the the part about how to describe how light would travel in this strange spiral-like path and really the next thing to look at which one of which one of my advisors was was interested in was how would this behave with an atom and that required a bit of a bit of theory talking about a certain way of uh it's called gauge transformations which is you can have a field something physical that you test but this is really derived from a potential and there are many ways to to change, you can change this potential and still arrive at the same field. So, this is and this is called invariance under some gauge transformations. And mm -hmm. and looking at those really helped me learn a lot more about the way this light behaved. And that was really a starting point because I took a particle physics class, and that was really gauge transformations was the core of that to derive not just in a couple examples for how light behaves, but how you derive many other types of particles and by looking at these symmetries. And it kind of, it felt like that was the most logical progression for following that interest. So. Okay. Got it. But like you said, you're still fairly, this is your first year in the program, right? So yeah. you're still fairly new uh, graduate student, like you said, pretty, not too far removed from undergrad. So being... Uh, a new graduate student, what is something that surprised you about graduate school? Something that you weren't expecting? Uh, there, there are a couple of things. Um, definitely the level of difficulty is much more than undergraduate. Um, I was also surprised how how accepting the professors are to... Uh, I, I was a bit worried about um, changing fields because I talked to some other people, and they already knew what they wanted to do, but they were accepting of that. And it was, it's definitely been challenging, but I guess in a good and a positive way, I'm surprised about that, that I have some more time to catch up with classes and some fields that I hadn't taken yet mm -hmm. to go into something new. Right. And I mean, in, in undergrad, a lot of people say your undergraduate experience is generally where somebody might change their major a couple of times and, you know, try different things. But even in graduate school, like you're saying, and I guess it's, it's fantastic that, that your, your mentors, your professors are open-minded about you changing fields, but, you know, your mind can change, right? And that's okay. Definitely. Yeah. So what, what preparation, um, did you do anything in particular, anything, I guess, extra or above and beyond like what you were required from your undergraduate classes to prepare you for graduate school? I know you said that uh, you felt once you got to graduate school that it was pretty tough. The the rigor was maybe a little higher than you expected, but what did you do in undergraduate? You, so you attended Stony Brook University, right? Right. For your college degree, for your undergrad. Um, so what did you do there to... Because, I mean, hey, you got into a graduate program, right? So they... So they see your potential, and so you must have done something right. So as an undergraduate, what did you do to prepare yourself for grad school? And what what and now and now having a year of graduate school experience under your belt, what advice might you give to yourself a year ago or to other students that are in college looking to get into a physics grad program? Well, outside of class, there was mostly um, research, basically. I guess the the, big, the best advice for someone who's looking to do something for additional preparation outside of classes, because I've heard of many cases where people say, well, I struggled through classes, but I had a really good experience with research, and that, that influenced me to keep on going. So I think it's good to try many different things. And 
there was um, doing research, not well, for a few years at City College, actually, during the summers, and then afterwards at Stony Brook. And what that really starts with is maybe going to someone you've never spoken to before and ask them, well, what, what do they research and how maybe you could learn about what they do. And the majority of the time, they'll, they'll be pretty pretty open to you, regardless of how much experience you have before in what they study. Mm-hmm. That's really the best starting point because you can really specialize in something outside of class. And sometimes that reflects your interest in, in a certain field more than Right, so just because a big a big part, of course you take classes in graduate school, right, but a big part of the graduate experience is doing research. And so I guess it, it, is, it is wise to have uh, a good amount of exposure, uh, right, to research in, in undergrad. How's that one? Yeah, yeah. And maybe even, like you said, uh, exposure to research in different fields. So maybe you have an idea of what you'd like to get into in grad school. And, all right, so now that you are in grad school, have you have you connected with any uh, professors? I know you said you're recently changing fields, but something that I like to do often is to uh, highlight the importance of mentors and just you know, having somebody to guide you at least a little bit uh, along the way. Have you encountered any any helpful souls out there, uh, professors or otherwise, in in your graduate experience so far? Oh, definitely. Um, here it's actually nice to have um a chance for it's called an independent study, and there you can you might want to cover a class or also look at some topic in the professor's research. And there, there it's a good place. You, you can meet some people that that will really make a difference. Um, and especially, well, in my, in my case, I, I was a bit worried about not having taken quantum field theory yet before starting research. And I learned that for someone who is in that position, and I found there are several people like that where there were professors will really accommodate to what you know. And... Um, give you things that you're capable of doing. Mm-hmm. And that, that can include maybe using some theories and studying some effects of theirs before going through each part of the theory in depth before you take a, after when you take a class. Or or they can guide you through that subject itself, maybe helping you learn it aside from the class. So some professors have different different approaches, but they'll, they'll accommodate it to you, and I think that contact is very important, and something that you can't just have in class, and, mm-hmm. well, it's also required. <laughs> yeah. But, but it's nice that it's personal and not mm-hmm. the, same, the same for everyone. Right. And I guess you have to also be proactive, right, in, in, in getting that contact. Um, I guess, I mean, classes are required, so you can go to classes and you can sit in class. And I'm, I'm sure in graduate school it's, it's different than undergrad in that uh, most of your classes are probably seminars where they're, you know, they're smaller classes and you have to speak up and you have to participate. But still, I feel like it's, um, and especially for students in, in undergrad, it's just important to be proactive and to reach out to the professor or your potential mentor. And uh, like you were saying earlier, get a research experience or anything like that. So, Stefan, one more thing. Apart from, hey, you know, get research experience in undergrad or anything like that, could you offer any other piece of advice, something that might not be expected for somebody who's interested in studying physics or just graduate school in general? Um, maybe something that sounds a little cliche, but it applies to me and a couple other people. Um, there's I guess leading up to grad school or some program, you might be in a research environment or an environment when you're doing research where maybe maybe it's not working out, but um, you're thinking, well, maybe I have to finish certain goals or finish some course of time that I've decided upon before. But um, 
and that's maybe against how you feel about the program. Maybe maybe you're thinking more about how how can I complete these tasks to show that I'm ready for grad school, and I think that's that's wrong. It's better really to step back and um, and not be afraid to look for something new, no matter what. And it does sound cliche, but sometimes when you're in that situation, it's difficult to come to that conclusion. Right. Maybe you wait too long, and you think, oh, afterwards you think, oh, I could have done that earlier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I guess, yeah, not afraid to, not be afraid to leave something and try something totally new. All right, yeah, that's a solid piece of advice, man. I mean, yeah, it's. I guess it is a little cliche when you say, uh, you know, follow your passion, right? That's, that's basically it. But it is It is true, and a lot of people don't do that. And I myself sometimes wish I had studied something a little different. Uh, as I'm, you know, I've spoken about it with you a bunch of times, but, you know, sometimes you, you get this maybe feeling of regret, and it's a bad feeling, and it's not something that you should have. So I guess you're right. If you have the power to kind of prevent that feeling from arising, you should do it. You should do what you can. Yeah. Really. yeah. Some heavy metal lyric that says, follow the pathway <laughs> by the fruits that were burnt. Yeah. <laughs> do, do you want to recommend any music to the listeners? I know you have a very, uh, very interesting selection of music that you listen to. Uh, Moon Sorrow. Uh, Moon Sorrow? Moon Sorrow. All right, Moon Sorrow. <laughs> All right, that is the choice. Uh, is Moonsaro a band? Oh, they're they're a band from Finland. Okay, yeah. perfect. All right, Moonsaro. So Moonsaro is the choice band uh, from Finland for uh, physics PhD students uh, all sure across the country. Stefan speaks for everybody. <laughs> all right, well, Stefan, thanks so much for chatting with me, man. I really appreciate your time and uh, all the pieces of advice. So, yeah, thanks a bunch. Last but not least, I'd like to present my group chat roundtable powwow, if you will, with the graduate students in Dr. Jane Raper's lab at Hunter College. We have Joe Giovinazzo, Jody Punt, Charles Schaub, and Joey Verdi, and we get into what each of them research individually and how they work together in the lab, and it was a fantastic discussion. So, here you go. All right, guys, I'm here with... Joe Giovinazzo, Jody Pont, and I'm here with Charles Schaub and Joey Overdy of the Raper Lab at Hunter College in New York City. Thank you for chatting with me, guys. What I'd really like to do is, of course, get into your experiences as graduate students, but, of course, in order to do that, we should first maybe get a taste of what you guys actually do in the lab. So, if we can go around, and I'd like to throw out a little challenge... 45 seconds. I know that you guys do... <laughs> I know you guys do complicated work. So I'd like to see if you can successfully describe what you do to somebody at a cocktail party in 45 seconds. Is so, it 20. 20? Okay. All right, so Joe's going to go first, and we got the timer here, and let's see if you can do it in 20. Go ahead. So in this lab, we work on African trypanosomiasis, right? It causes sleeping sickness. Now... A lot of all, all of us are susceptible, or rather, a lot of us are susceptible to this disease. But over time, basically, a molecular arms race has occurred, and human beings have evolved resistance for a specific gene in order to kill these parasites. So they're resistant to certain forms of African trypanosomiasis. But this comes at a price, a heavy price. So what they found out about five years ago is that certain variants of these genes, called apolipoprotein L1, if you have two copies of these variants you're at a very, very high risk for kidney disease, right? And this is really prevalent in the African-American population. They estimate about 3 million African-Americans have um, this genotype, right, of these two variants. And one of the things we're interested in doing is finding out what is it about these variants causing disease. And we use that by working with mice and working in cell culture. All right. Thank you. Very clear, very concise. Okay, so, yeah, to continue with Joe's um, work, um, I I work in similar stuff, so I'm looking into evolution of that innate immune gene that kills African trypanosome, but what we've uh, known in um, recent um, years is that it also kills leukemia. 
So I want to look at the role of both African comparisons and the integration of that image imaging, which is called apolar protein, and it floats in our body, high-density protein. And leishmania is another So it is parasite? another parasite, and it causes disease, um, which can be really mild, or like the severe forms are really bad, and it causes visceral leishmania, it's usually commonly called um, calendar. Yeah, and it's a third most common uh, disease that causes disease. I'm pretty sure that uh, Leishmania major, the one that causes cutaneous leishmaniasis, is the most commonly infective pathogen for U.S. troops abroad. Um, I'm pretty sure I think that's a, and the drugs are terrible for it. So yeah, I, I didn't I didn't know it was that prevalent. I don't know it was, it was right right behind malaria. That's yeah, it's kind of crazy. And yeah, more people don't know about it. But, yeah. yeah. All right. Thank you, yeah, so Charles. Well, so I'm just starting this lab. I just decided to pick this as a place to do my thesis, and I'll primarily be working with uh, surface plasmon resonance. And the simplest way I can put that is I can test how well two things bind together, and I can compare it um, to how well certain variants combine. Specifically, I want to test uh, how well the APOL1 binds together, because as of right now, we're not sure about a mechanism for how it kills the trypanosomes. So we think that they might cluster together to form pores. So by testing that, we can kind of get a better idea of how it works. And uh, as of right now, I'm not really sure what else I'll be doing, but it'll be pretty cool to say the least. Yeah, and you come from a chemistry background, right? Um, Every, everyone else here studied biology? Yeah, I'm, I'm the only biochemist in the lab, so I'm the coolest. <laughs> and most fun, but uh, yeah, yeah. So uh, humans are resistant to trypanosomes not only because of apolyptic protein L1, but there's also a second gene that no one else seems to care about, called haptoglobin-related protein. And so we have found these variants in apolyptic protein L1 that are a better at killing trypanosomes and b cause kidney disease. What I'm trying to do uh, with one of my projects is I'm trying to find similar, see if there's any genetic variants in the haptoglobin-related protein, see if HPR is also involved in somewhat of a molecular arms race, because it is equally as important for trypanocidal activity and as apolyptoprotein-L1 is, and with leishmania as well. The, uh, the mechanism for how leishmania gets killed by trypanosomes is unknown, but HPR seems to be involved somehow. Mm-hmm. So what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to figure out if there's any you know, evolution happening in that gene and see if it's as cool as the one with the, the story with April 01. Right. I think uh, Joe had a comment. I don't know if I would say it's, it's equally important. It's pretty important. But, I mean, without April 01, there is no, there is no death at all, right? At least in vitro, if you take out the HBR gene, you can kill the parasites. But that's in vitro. Yeah, yeah. But you can have one without the other. But this is true. The way ApoL1 gets into trypanosomes and kills them is via uh, a lock and key mechanism, Not wherein always. HPR is the key into the lock. And if you have HP, HPR, looks a lot like haptoglobin, which is always floating around in human blood in high concentration with respect to other organisms. And so if you have too much haptoglobin and not enough HPR, then there's too many locks that fit into that key, and April 1 can't get in anymore. I mean, too many keys that fit into that. Because <laughs> <laughs> haptoglobin functions as the same sort of key. But there's also more than one way to get in. Right. And we don't know if that is true for leishmania, but still, it's uh, So basically what I'm trying to tell you guys here is that I think HPR is just as important as April 1, but no one else in the world seems to, so that's why I like working on it. It's pretty important. This is Joe's backtracking. So what just happened is, is kind of really interesting. Like even within the same lab, there's usually uh, a bit of a difference of opinion on something as specific as, oh, is this protein more important to a certain mechanism, or is the other protein more important? Are they both equally relevant? So, if if anybody can uh, feel free to jump in, how do you how do you kind of do you think that having differing opinions in a lab, 
how might that be conducive to everybody's individual research? Most important thing. If you all think the same, you're not going to find anything new. Mm. Yeah, we have a lot of arguments in our lab meeting, and I think that's probably <laughs> a more, one of the more functional aspects of it, for sure. You have to. But yeah, besides lab meeting, I think it's, yeah, it's really productive to have yeah, it really allows you to see the other side of the same coin and bounce ideas off each other because you might be thinking of something in such a narrow view. You ask one of your lab mates that have a completely different idea about a certain protein and really help you to either tweak your experiment or look at it in a different way, which can really help you go forward with the progress. Absolutely, that's actually exactly why we wanted, we were excited to have Charles join the lab since, as we mentioned, he's the biochemist. <laughs> he's the <laughs> so he has a whole different opinion on how all these different things work that I'm sure we'll figure out eventually once he figures out, it hits his stride as it were, he'll be able to provide a much different opinion that I'm excited for. So working in a lab, it's, there's, I don't want to use the word hierarchy, but because Past the PI, everyone's kind of on the same same plane. Would you say that's okay? I'm, I'm sure, of course, there are students who've been here longer than others. Mm-hmm. But so, how does how does working with a PI come into like your daily your daily research lives? I think it depends on each lab. Like every lab is like a micro universe or whatever. Like they're all there's no laws in academic research. Every lab is completely different. Some PIs are standing over your shoulder. Our PI is more standoffish in a good way. It lets you trust us to do our own work and sort of follow our own path rather than dictating what we do every single day, which I've heard some PIs do. Some people like that. Some people, yeah. I some mean, people want you, that. Know, you fall into yeah. whatever niche that fits your particular methods of learning and working and stuff. I mean, we're here for, you know, we're grad students, as you said. We're here for five some odd years, so you obviously got to find an environment that fits you and RPI, as Joe said, is, you know, she trusts us, but she also wants to meet with us all the time to know what we've been doing, make sure we haven't just been doing nothing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think we've got a good balance going on in here. But I wouldn't confuse that with her not being available, because if you have a question, no one will have can answer it, she always makes herself available to help you. What are you trying to kiss ass? You're in the lab, man. It's done. Yeah. <laughs> I have an issue with that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Charles thinks it's an interview <laughs> for the last hey, spot. You still think oh, it's not? No, I'm not here. It's yeah. not a probationary period. <laughs> yeah, so, so I guess so something that I've actually come to really hear over and over again when I talk to different scientists is that when I ask whether it's a very pointed question about a particular topic or whether it's about science research in general, the answer is generally it depends, right? And I guess it kind of, in this case, that's all. It, it depends on the person, the PI, depends on the graduate student, depends on what you're looking for, whether you want to be micromanaged, whether you work better under more structure or less structure and all that, right? So in, when, we, when, we, when we talk about uh, your research, we talk about all the experiments you do, how, is there kind of a number that you have in your head, like, okay, if I'm studying something... I don't know the answer is going to be, it depends. But if, if I'm studying something, a particular whatever, uh, does this protein have a certain effect on this type of uh, mammalian cell, whatever it is, um, how, how important is it to not just base any conclusions or extrapolations from one experiment? How important is it to, to, to do multiple experiments, to test the same thing? To do so before? there are many ways to prove in and especially these days because you know, there are so many techniques available and also I mean you can answer one question biochemically or like genetically. So I mean there are many techniques and methods available. So basically you can prove questions differently. But yeah, based on one it gives you an idea of like where you're going but um, definitely you have to do experiments to actually be sure enough that I mean Sometimes one is, it just depends, I think, yeah. Sometimes one experiment is good enough to solve maybe your experiment solves what you want. Or like sometimes you have to do some of it. So it just depends. 
Yeah, you just want a different perspective. Like, you know, you want some mm-hmm. things are together, you want to see, you know, show that they bind, you can do microscopy, stuff like that. Like a different, as she said, probe the same thing but from a different angle. Right. So you see it from all sides. Mm-hmm. A lot of times when we, we talk about graduate students or when PIs talk about graduate students, uh, they say, oh, you know, they, they are the workhorses of the lab. They do most of the work. Yes. To what... All right, so I guess you agree. I was going to ask, to what extent do you think that statement is true? Are there, is there any any work that I feel like... You guys do handle all the work. The PIs generally have the overarching theme, overarching goals of what the lab is going to do. And then everything else is handed down to you. In the smaller labs, yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there, even there's some labs at this university that I know where the PIs are still, you know, not even, not necessarily fresh out of postdocs, but there's a lot of PIs that are around here that stay at the bench and do a lot of works themselves. Oh, okay. But I, I would say for the most part, yeah, I mean, they're grad students and also postdocs are the ones who are really, you know, supposed mm-hmm. to be pumping out the most of the work, I guess, if you want to call it that. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's definitely a few labs at Hunter, though, and not even just Hunter or CUNY, where the PIs are at the bench all the time. I know that for sure. Mm-hmm. Like, even down the hall. And in case people don't know, a postdoc is a person who has finished their, their graduate studies. They have their PhD. And so this is kind of... Not everybody who gets their PhD right away can, you know, get into a professorship. Almost there no was one. No, no, almost no one. Almost no one. So this, so could you describe better than, like, probably better yeah, than... Yeah, no, what so whatever. A postdoc is a postdoctoral degree. You get your doctorate, it's your PhD, and then you go and do something after that postdoctoral degree, you get a postdoc, where you basically, yeah. I mean, kind of the goal seems to be you just go work with someone in a field you're A, interested in, and B, have some experience in, and you want to pump out, like, one important piece of information in maybe three years, and then move on to potentially another postdoc if you're still not ready for a faculty spot. Or, you know, try and enter the workforce as a real academic professional. But that's it. I think a good analogy might be like uh, after other professional schools, like medical school, you know, to put a doctor. Mm-hmm. And you've got an intern and then do residency in the field. Mm-hmm. Postdoc, it depends on where you want to go. If you want to be a professor, you need to build a story. That could take many years. If you want a job in industry and they just want to see a, a, maybe a little bit less, you don't need a whole story to actually write grants and get a position, but um, it's pretty much the reality for almost all of us that want to continue in any sort of facet of research. So everyone here is probably looking at getting a postdoc mm-hmm. after after your PhD? Just in different areas. Mm-hmm. For those of us who want to go into industry, we'll try to get an industry postdoc. People trying to go into academia research, we'll try to get postdoc at a school. Oh, okay. So there are private sector postdocs, is it not, not all just mm-hmm. in academia? It's not many though. Yeah, okay. Very few. But they are out there. <laughs> I hope. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about maybe some silliness, maybe some fun that might happen in the lab. Can anybody think of any crazy stories? It could be something that might not, that maybe shouldn't have happened. Maybe it's something that kind of might have put somebody at a risk for infection because you guys do you guys do yeah, work with speaking. you guys do work with with parasites in this lab and, and so it's and just other chemicals that you probably shouldn't inhale or drink so anything like that. Well, we follow standard protocol most of the time. Of course. But yeah, once Joe stick himself with a needle, which that was a broken it was a broken cover split. But yeah. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, you know, whatever accidents happen, fall procedure, he's still alive as we can see. Yeah. I checked my own blood for a while afterwards, but immediately I had like contact the Hunter Health. Uh, actually, I had to contact the CDC and just tell them, and I had like do a whole. You know, a fun story about that though, kind of not related to our lab, is oh, that yeah. uh, so we humans get infected by penicillins because they have in a molecular arms race become resistant to our 
mechanisms of uh, evolution able of protein L1. So uh, we know now that if you give a non-human infectious trypanosome, that is the animal-infective or cattle-infective species, trypanosome brucei brucei, if you genetically manipulate it so that it can express one single gene called serum-resistance-associated gene, it will become fully human infectious. And the reason we know that is because something like that, I don't know, 12 years ago, someone did that in a lab and then accidentally stuck themselves and ended up getting infected and had to get treated. That's the only wow. reason. It was like anecdotally proven that that one single gene physically in vivo makes it completely human infectious. And so they published a paper on it no. and it actually became... No more experiments to be done. Yeah, no, they didn't have to do anything else. That's I would have done that for a paper. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well... You almost did. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, you, you said you were checking your own blood. Uh -huh. What do you mean by that? Um, like the simplest way, right? They're in your blood. These guys, these trypanosomes, right? They're extracellular. They literally swim in your blood. So I just prick my finger, put it on a slide, and do a little blood smear, and just look for them. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I went to a doctor as well multiple <laughs> times. I mean, I didn't just do that. You know, <laughs> just do like survivalist medicine. Yeah. Yeah. And like wherever they check me, mm -hmm. the doctors there were like. You could tell they, they obviously don't want me to, to be sick, but they also would love a nice case study of a <laughs> New Yorker with African trypanosomes. Having an infectious disease, that, oh, I guess there's a doctor in New York who might see a lot of that, but you know, that's exotic. But they didn't get that from me. <laughs> you disappointed them. Yeah. You're useful to science in other ways. <laughs> Can we talk a little bit about what, if any, probably many challenges? you guys have as graduate students. It could be literally it could be your day to day, oh this 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 equipment isn't working, it could be oh this technique might not be right, it could be oh this bureaucracy stinks, it could be anything like that. What are what are the, the day to day challenges of the graduate students? So uh me, Joe and Jody are uh, molecular students to whatever the program that we're in is different than Charles's. So I feel like Charles is probably the best one to tackle this first part of the question because <laughs> the biochemistry program has a way more intensive class load that he has been messing with this entire year. Yeah, it's awful. <laughs> so I think the biggest problem for me is just time and allocating it properly. And you, At least for me, I really want to be in the lab and I can't half the time because I'm either studying for a test or preparing for two first levels, which is ridiculous, but we're not even getting into that. <laughs> Still haven't taught yet, what do you teach? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, know, right. you have to teach usually as a graduate student in your second year, I believe, right? And third Starting. year, fourth well, year. Starting your so second year. You've to teach the whole time. It's yeah. 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 Yes. <laughs> so, uh, it's definitely one of the biggest parts of it, at least for me. That's all I got. <laughs> I mean, difficult as a grad student is just... It's just something I just read like recently. It was an article about just stupidity in research. Like you always feel like an idiot because you're basically up against the unknown and you have no idea what you're doing. Right. Especially as a grad student, you're new to research. Mm -hmm. Like we're all we're all A students in class. I'm assuming that's why we're here. But learning about other people's, I'm like, I'm ripping this article word by word now. But like <laughs> getting A's in class about other people's research is one thing. Doing your own research is like a whole other. Thing. And I mean, I guess you just have to be, just have to get used to feeling like an idiot most of the time because you do a lot of things and they go nowhere. Or like right. you do a lot of things and you realize I just wasted six months for the mistake. Or blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. so. That's something I like to discuss a lot with, with the scientists that I talk to that it's, it's okay to feel like an idiot in science, you know? And a lot of people, a lot of people who are outside of the scientific discipline, they might think, like, oh, this, you know, this guy getting his PhD, or this guy is a professor, you know, found out, or uh, this lady, a professor, found out so many things, must be a genius, must have been a genius from the get-go. Of course, you have to have a baseline level of smarts, like you said, you have to be good in school, but it, it of course, takes some building to, right? It's so, you know, even these very, very smart people feel like idiots, like you said, a lot of time to spend, especially with research, because I feel, at least... The, the, the short stint that I did in the lab, it feels like, you know, at least like eight or nine times out of ten, you're going to be a little off. There Your results are going to be wrong, right? Success, yeah. totally. And I kind of feel like, I don't know, maybe only those people who are really passionate about research would stay, like, with, you know, like all those. Right, yeah. 
feelings yeah. and yeah. failures because you really are passionate and you like what you're doing, so stick to it. Yeah, I mean, you said being an idiot in science is okay. Feeling like an idiot is okay. I mean, like, it's only okay because it has to be okay. Because right. if you're not okay with it, then you're not going to be a scientist right. anymore. So, I think we're more persistent and stubborn than we are smart. Because there you go. There exactly. Go. So that's yeah. like something that passion drives because mm-hmm. you really mm-hmm. like what you're doing and because I don't know about you guys, but something going right the first time is like a miracle. It's usually <laughs> like the second or third time that everything goes smoothly, and you know that's when you get the good results. And it's just mm-hmm. you know keep working toward that perfect result. I think is what you really need to be working towards as opposed to just giving up the first time. You're not going to get anywhere. That's part of the reason that research timelines are so long. Right? There's always there's always some some kinks to be worked out. There's always right exactly nothing works the first time, and so that's why you know that's why good research um, and you know we can differentiate between. That's why good research takes a long time. Something very important to to do while you're doing your own research is to look at other people's research, right? Critique it and see if it is good research or if it is bad research. Can you talk a little bit about that? About how you guys. You know, uh, go at looking at other people's research, trying to find holes, trying to find questions to ask about them. I mean, something we do a lot. You know, critiquing papers like Journal Club and stuff like that. I mean, one of the things I will say, though, I don't think we do it enough, is that we will tear apart any rival's work <laughs> to nothing. But when it comes to our own work, I don't think we apply the same amount mm. of incision and sometimes just blind hatred <laughs> against it. Right. You know what I mean? So, you gotta... And I mean, that's hard to do because it's like looking at yourself in the mirror and like, you know, you're ugly. Yeah. So, it's... But it's probably the most important thing. Mm-hmm. Right? That's why, like, we as students have committees because they will do that. And you go up there and they say, no, right. that's a bad idea. No, that's a terrible experiment. Mm-hmm. So. so, yeah, something about being a grad student is that as you go, you have a committee of faculty members that you have to present to every year. You have to give them a check-in of what you've been doing. And since everybody in the world knows that we are not critical enough of our own selves yet, <laughs> that's why they do that. So I don't think, I don't think anybody spend, is, though. I mean, well, yeah, that's for sure. But, mm-hmm. you know, we have to be supposed to be getting a good start as grad students or whatever. We have to be at least brought into that world. So once a year, we have to check in with them and have them basically tell us why half of what we did that year was incorrect. And then have to correct it next year. So it's a, you know, we, being self-critical is just as important as being critical of everybody else. Although, I don't know, it's more fun to be critical of everybody else. Yeah, yeah. But, you can't be too critical of yourself either because then you will, like, I don't know, do nothing. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Are there any pieces of advice that you might give to a, a budding future grad student, somebody who's interested in the field of biology or just science in general who might want to pursue a PhD. Any any caveats? Any any do undergraduate anything? research and see if you yeah. like it before you even apply yeah. mm-hmm. That's probably the most important thing. Computers. Computers? Yeah, that's where the world is moving, you know. Computer science and biology are say yeah. once you have to go into bioinformatics, but just to know about it mm-hmm. and use it. Also look, look at what, what, look where you would be ten years from when you started grad school. Like, what are your options, and is that something right. you actually want? Right. You know, mm-hmm. do you really want to be a researcher? Yeah, I would say do it, man. <laughs> <laughs> Just do it. I love where I'm at. I mean, I entered the undergrad lab near the end of junior year, so I only had one year of research experience before I came here, but I mean, I'd always known I liked science, and I just wanted to do it, but you had mentioned about, Joe, you had mentioned about how we were all A students. That's not entirely true. It's true now. We're all A students now, but back in college, I mean, I was, like, I wasn't ready for a PhD program when I was sophomore in college, that's for sure. My grades were nowhere close to good enough. I didn't put enough work into everything, and then I just, like, found science senior year, you know what I mean? I tried it out because I was always interested in it. Like Charles said, I just joined a lab, and, you know, it hit me. It was wicked cool, so I started actually going, you know, studying and stuff. <laughs> oh, yeah, sorry, my Northeast Boston accent's coming out. So, wicked. wicked. So, try it out, right? Before you commit to something like a PhD program, try it out. I would right. definitely say, yeah, do some of the research, because then you know like, if you like it or not. 
a lot of, a lot of students um, at least I mean, I, I, I had a couple I had a couple years of undergraduate research experience too but when I was looking to get into it I wasn't too sure how to go about that I'm sure a lot of other undergraduate students might be interested in doing they might not know they might be too nervous to just you know talk to a professor email the professor hey can I join your lab what what is kind of a good way to go about it Straight email or really, really, they yeah, yeah there's no better or worse yeah. way it's just like ask them about it you know what I mean well, I, used to to, have, I used to be completely like inept when it came to that though like I was definitely wicked shy about asking people if I could like work with them or whatever but you get over it eventually the one thing you do have to do which we're really probably going to say is read like you have to know what they work don't on don't just be like oh can I do research like, hey like right. you do cool stuff your poster is yeah, colorful exactly. can I join your lab no, like, <laughs> you gotta like know what you're getting into but mm-hmm. yeah. yeah also it's time commitment yeah. We're the ones that train undergrads. I don't want somebody's going to come in here, like, and leave in a couple of weeks, you know, something like that. Mm-hmm. So, it sucks because you get paid nothing for it. But um, if you want to be in a lab, the best way to get anything out of it on both sides is to just make sure you're going to be there for a while. Make sure you like the work. I mean, if you're at a research university, there's going to be all kinds of different labs. Mm-hmm. You're going to be able to find something you like. If you're not at a research university... Oh, it's gonna make it tougher, but so. you can still apply for some Yeah, some programs are awesome, ten weeks long, something like that. But still, you know, the question was, how do you apply for those? Well, read what they do and shoot them an email. I mean, that's an app, that's like you apply for that. I think. Yeah, that's that's like, that you can, you can get that. people on your on your team. But yeah. That's true. But yeah, definitely show some passion too. I mean, like and also Spend most, your timers. <laughs> waste their time. And most just want to take freshmen now. Yes. A lot of them you like want you to at least have some science classes. Some like at class. least like the second level whatever physics chemistry that you're in. Mm-hmm. At least have you there first before you trying to train. Because training takes a long time. It does. Mm-hmm. So yeah. So basically be prepared when you're doing anything, be prepared when you bought a PhD program, be prepared <laughs> when you talk to a professor, try to get in their lab. Is there anything that, once you guys did become graduate students, is there anything that you found unexpected, something that surprised you about being a graduate student, something that kind of might have come out of nowhere, something that maybe you weren't prepared for? Well, for me, I had baby, like, after I came to graduate school. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I was trying to figure out how to like, balance everything. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Other than that, I think. Like, I don't mm. I don't think anything beats baby. But yeah, I mean. I had just moved to New York when I first started here in this lab. I had like literally just moved to New York a month prior. So I was trying to balance New York, what this is like compared to the Northeast, as you can hear. Nothing else? You guys were ready? Ready coming in? Huh? It was tough, you said? It was just tough. But then, I, whatever, I worked in a lab before here, and that was also tough. So I knew, like, you know, research was kind of your head against the wall. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Can we all agree that that's an apt description? Yeah. Research? Yeah. yeah. Pounding your head against the wall. So, for sure. You know, I used to... My, my undergrad lab prepared me well, I think, for where I'm at now. Not scientifically, but just the fact that what I was doing there was so mundane and time-consuming. That I was I was fully prepared for the amount of time I needed to spend here doing actual research. I used to sit there, just spreading bacteria on plates for hours and hours and hours every day. But you know, not that that was intensive as an intellectual or anything. But the amount of time I spent doing that had me prepared for like what grad school was. Yeah. That's something I'll show you in the movies. Excruciating <laughs> tedium of being a scientist. Sometimes. That's one right. of the reasons I think um, being. Because then you would know like what you're actually going into rather than looking into fancy science, you know, like mm-hmm. professor or like maybe you would be looking this way. You should know like how much amount of time for them. Mm-hmm. Exactly like yeah. similar things. So. Yeah. No, but you're right, the tedious nature is really shown in movies. I don't think anybody, you know, if we were to put out a movie of you know, two hours of Joey plating bacteria. I don't think anybody would look at We have a montage. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's like a Rocky sort of <laughs> with bacteria plates with the, pouring the, them. The Rocky them. music in the background. Yep. He's getting better and better at it yeah. as he goes yeah. on. 
He's getting good friends. <laughs> good colleagues. Well, I want to thank you guys very much for your time talking to me. I had a blast. This was fun. I hope you enjoyed it as well. And um, I'm sure our listeners would really they'll appreciate the graduate student perspective on research and science. It's so, wicked fun, man. <laughs> yeah. Any any last words? Any last shout outs? Go for it. I love science. <laughs> I agree. That's what, uh, that's what it's all about. Yeah. Tough, time consuming, but it's fine. All right. Or actually, now I think about it, when uh, you're picking a lab, look at the lab and the mentor. Don't settle for one or the other. Pick like a lab that you like the mentor and you like the research. Mm-hmm. Or else I hear horror stories from other people that they either hated their mentor or they started to hate the lab work, and you definitely don't want that two or three years into your thesis work. But, you know, if you love science, you could just go get to it. Yeah. So you have to do science <laughs> So, number one, love science. <laughs> number two, good mentor. Anything. Good mentor, good lab. Mm-hmm. Number three, alcohol. Alcohol? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, to get you through the, the tediousness. <laughs> All right, well, thank you guys. This was a blast. Termination of current scientist the human episode. Stay breezy.